This week is an important week of ministry in our children's area. Vacation Bible School begins in the morning with hundreds of boys and girls who will be coming, and the scores of adults will be coming to help lead and teach and help in various ways. So be in prayer, please, for Vacation Bible School, and ask God to give us a wonderful week of ministry to these young lives. Please open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. This book of 1 Corinthians, I hope you've noticed as we've studied it together, speaks to a world like ours. Its context is pagan and immoral. The pages of 1 Corinthians penetrate to the very core of the cultural values and the sensual lifestyle that tempt believers away from Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about this again this morning as he writes, beginning in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. In the ancient days of old, when I played basketball in high school, 
I remember our coach on many occasions explaining to us a certain play and how he wanted it done. But it didn't really come across to me as one of his coachees until he demonstrated it. Until he went through the motion or showed us on the floor or did the exercise that he wanted the rest of us to do. I'm one of those people who needs an example. The Corinthians needed an example. They needed a flesh and blood model of what it means to live out godly conduct in an ungodly culture. They needed to know what godly living looked like on the streets of a place like Corinth. They needed a mentor, a discipler who would give them a pattern and show them that it is possible to live a self-disciplined, race-winning life in a corrupt world. That's why this book is so important for us. Because we also need to be reminded that we can live a self-disciplined, race-winning life in a corrupt world. And that's the point that Paul raises in the text, because he, he had personally lived among them for 18 months. They knew his life well. And he wasn't afraid to tell them to imitate himself. For Paul himself had imitated Christ. Paul is not here claiming that he is perfect when he says, imitate me. He is not claiming he is perfect in every respect. He is only saying that Christ had taught him, that Christ had transformed his attitudes and his actions to such an extent that he could say, imitate me, literally says, mimic me as I also have imitated Christ. Jesus was evident in Paul. And that's why Paul could not hesitate to say, imitate me, because if you do, you will imitate Jesus. I believe the point that God wants us to grasp in this text today is that you will know how to be like Jesus and finish your race with success if you too mimic Paul. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, Paul explains it in this text. In fact, there are four imperatives in this text that are in the present tense that show us that Paul is telling us what habits we need to have in our life in order to mimic him. Indeed, I believe to follow Paul, to imitate Paul, you must seek to build four habits into your life. The first habit is this, to flee idolatry. He talks about this in verses 14 to 22. Flee continually as a habit of life, idolatry, he says. Now, Corinth had a long history as a center of idol worship. There was a restored temple of Apollo that was originally built 600 years before Paul was in the city. It had been restored. And there was another sanctuary that had a colossal statue of a god. There are seven columns of Apollo's temple that still remain in the ruins of Corinth till this day. So magnificent and massive was the structure. 
On the slope of a nearby hill, there was a shrine to Athena. Near the Apollo temple, there was a shrine and a fountain to Poseidon. Other remains from the Roman period include a pantheon, which is a temple to all of the gods. There were also temples to Heracles, Hermes, and Jupiter. In addition, there was a temple to the deified sister of Emperor Augustus, whose name was Octavia. But then on the rocky pinnacle that was nearby, that was called the Acro-Corinth, that stood about 600 feet above the plain where Corinth was located, was this famous temple that we've mentioned several times to the goddess Venus, or Aphrodite. And then on the north slopes, leading from the top down toward the city, on the north slopes of this rocky pinnacle were other temples as well, to the Egyptian gods Isis and Serapis. And there was one to Demeter. In fact, that particular temple was used from 600 B.C. for almost a thousand years. In other words, 300 years after Paul left the city of Corinth, that temple was still in use, and in the ruins of it, they have found large dining rooms. Perhaps that is the occasion for Paul's remark here regarding the table of demons that he tells them not to eat at. And so you see, when Paul says to these people in Corinth, flee idolatry, it was a very pertinent command. You say, well, what does that mean today? Because we don't have idols all over the place. Well, it depends upon how we define idols, doesn't it? We don't have idols, perhaps, in the sense of Corinth. We can say this very clearly from what is, is meant by Paul, that Christians ought never to be involved in idol worship or in any false religious system that leads men away from God. For that's what idol worship really is intended to do, to lead men away from the knowledge of the true God. Christians ought never to be involved in a false religious system like that. Now Paul reminds us that an idol is nothing in itself, but demons, he says, exploit idols for their own wicked gratification. You say, well, so what if they do? Paul's point here is that believers are united to Jesus Christ and as such, we dare not fellowship with demons. Someone has said you can't walk with God and run with the devil. That's what Paul is saying here. He makes an allusion in verses 16 and 17 to the Lord's Supper. He speaks about the one bread, which of course is Jesus Christ, who said, I am the bread of life. He is the one bread, and we who are many have been made one by partaking of this one bread. In verse 18, he gives an illustration from Old Testament Israel. Harold Mayer says, Here Paul compares the Old Testament sacrifices with pagan offerings. When the people of Israel sacrificed at the altar and ate part of the sacrifice, they participated in and became a part of the sacrificial system and worship of God. And so, when the pagans sacrifice, they do so to demons. And Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to share in worship having to do with demons. That is his point. And so we can say from this part of the text 
that to imitate Paul means to avoid anything that compromises the uniqueness and the completeness of Jesus Christ's saving work in his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection for the dead. Anything that compromises the gospel message we are to stay away from. Any kind of false religious system. But there's also more meaning here than that, I think, for us. Because it also means, if we are to flee idolatry, that we must forsake anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Any idol, put that in quotes, any idol that interferes with Jesus Christ's lordship must be forsaken. The Christian is not raised, is not ruined, rather, by living in the world. But the Christian is ruined by the world living in him. What we have today in our culture is not the worship of idols of stone, but the worship of attitudes and things and pleasure. We have idols of fame and idols of relationship and idols of self-interest. Idols of things that we possess and idols of things that we want to possess. Idols of sports, idols of entertainment, idols of games, idols of television. We can go on and on down the list and describe the idols that are prominent in our culture. And I want to submit to you today, we may not live in a a culture like Corinth where there are temples to gods and goddesses. But we live in a culture that is filled with idolatry. Where there are many things that can take the place of God in the lives of people. And those things also take the place of God too often in our lives. And so let's not think that Paul's words are somehow foreign and for somebody else when he says that if we're going to imitate him, If we're going to run the race and win it, then we have to flee from those things that take the place of God in our lives. You say, well, how do I know what things are taking the place of God in my life? You have to examine your heart and ask yourself questions like, does this thing receive more of my time and energy than the Lord does? Do I make greater sacrifices for this activity or for this purpose than I do for God? Do I think about this? Do I desire this more than I desire God's will in my life? Really all we have to do to find out what the idols are in our lives is think back to the last week and see how we really spent it. To take a look at our checkbook and see what we're really spending our money on. And to think through our plans for the future and what we're focusing on doing in the next year or the next ten years or with the rest of our lives. 
And when we have honestly answered those questions, then we'll be able to know to what extent we are idolaters. Paul is writing to the Corinthians who believed in Jesus Christ just like you and I do. But here they are in their worldliness with the world living in them now going back to their old ways. And the values and the priorities of God are being forsaken. And that is as true in the 20th century church as it was true in the first century church at Corinth. And so I say to you that if we're going to mimic Paul, we need to make a life habit to ruthlessly examine our hearts for idols and to dump them. And not to do that once on some Sunday morning, but to make it a habit of life. To examine our hearts and to say, God, does this thing come before you? Do I prefer this above being with you? Am I giving more of myself to this thing than I'm giving to you? To ruthlessly look at our hearts and to flee from those things that are robbing God of the, the preeminence and the supreme place that he rightly deserves. There's a second command that Paul gives that we find in verse 24. Uh, he says it in the negative, but we're going to put it in the positive. He says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. I want to suggest to you that if we're going to imitate Paul, it, not only, it means not only to flee idols, but it means to bless others. Verses 23 to 30 talk about this, and here Paul again introduces the theme that he's talked about several times as we've studied the book, and that is this problem of eating food that has been offered to idols. He's not talking about going to the idol's temple and, and there participating in something, but he's talking about food sold in the marketplace that had first been offered to idols and which was therefore cheaper, easier to get a hold of. Paul introduces this problem. Should a Christian eat that kind of meat? Well, Paul says, possibly so. He says, all things are lawful. Remember, that was the little statement that some of them were using to justify their lifestyle. <clears throat> I'm a Christian. I can do anything. I have freedom in Christ. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, okay, you can, you can possibly eat of it, but consider this. Not all things are profitable. It doesn't bring advantage to others. Not all things edify. That is, they don't build up others. And so he suggests to them, you may want to limit your choices out of love. When that's necessary in order to bless others, in order to do them good. Paul reminds them again, let love for others limit your liberty, if need be, so that your life will be a blessing. 
Paul applies this idea in verses 25 through the first part of verse 29, where basically he says, hey, you can eat anything. And if you go to an unbeliever's house and he puts before you food of any sort, eat it. Unless, unless someone says to you, that's been offered to an idol. And Paul says, if you learn that, then you're better off not eating it for that person's sake. Not your own conscience, but for his conscience' sake, so that he will not be offended. And then Paul says, why is my liberty judged by somebody else? Doesn't that sound like a 20th century question? Why should I limit my life for somebody else? Paul's point here is that although he may eat with thankfulness anything, if his actions create misunderstanding and slander against him by somebody who's weak in their conscience... It's better for him to refrain from eating. But Paul's point, I think, in this part of the paragraph is this. If you and I are going to imitate him and thus run a winning race, we need to make it a habit of life to conduct ourselves so as to bless others. And sometimes that means putting ourselves second or third or tenth on the list. There are things we would rather do or there are things that we feel free to do that so we can be a blessing to others, we don't do. John Greenleaf Whittier said, He who blesses most is blessed. So let me tell you, in living that kind of a life, this life of love that Paul is suggesting here, it's not that we rob of ourselves. We may deny ourselves, but we... We also bring ourselves into the place of blessing when we bless others. So, Paul says, imitate me. And if you're going to do that, it means choosing every day to make it a habit of your life every day to live to bless other people. To live to bless others. There's a third command that Paul gives. We find it in verse 32. Verse 31, rather. Where he says, do all to the glory of God. Do is imperative. It's in the present tense. Paul says if we're going to imitate him, it means fleeing idols. It means blessing others. Third, it means glorifying God. In whatever actions you take or the choices you make, you and I are to seek God's interests not our own. Now what does it mean to glorify God? Let me suggest a couple of phrases that I think encapsulate the heart of it. In the first place, it means to advance His purpose. To glorify God is to understand what God is about and to advance His purpose. And therefore, I make my choices in whatever I do so that God's purpose is put forward. It's advanced. It's promoted. Secondly, it means to enhance his reputation. That whatever I do, I'm concerned about what, how others view God. I want to enhance God's reputation in the world. 
Sometimes God gets a pretty bum rap in this area by Christians, doesn't he? Because the way that we choose to live or to talk or to act actually detracts from the glory of God. And God's reputation is smeared. Now God himself is still all glorious, but the fact is his reputation can be smeared. And so that's why Paul says, if you want to imitate me and run a race that will win in the end, then you need to make it a habit of your life to promote God's reputation in everything you do. Make that a habit of your life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to what? Not too many Anglicans here today. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man. One man wrote, To lift up the hands in prayer gives God glory. But a man with a dung fork in his hand, or a woman with a slop pail, give him glory too. He is so great that all things give him glory, if you mean that they should. I was talking the other evening to a student at one of our Christian colleges nearby, very involved in athletics, in the past at least, and... Uh, now majoring in what he needs to major on as a college student. And he said, you know, God has taught me in the last few months that when I'm out playing basketball or I'm playing sports, that I should not do that for my reputation. And he said, the reason I'm studying now hard in college is not to glorify me, but he says, I'm doing it to glorify God. Hallelujah. He's made a huge step of maturity in his life. And that's what Paul is saying here. Whatever you do, be it eating or drinking, the, the course of life, the routine things of the day, whatever you do, Make it a habit of life to advance and promote God's reputation in those things. And then there's a final word of command that Paul gives in verses 32 and 33, where he says, Give no offense. Give no offense. Present tense. It's to be a habit. He says, If you're going to mimic me and Jesus... And thus, win the race of life and receive the reward at the end. That what you need to do is to win the lost. For he says, give no offense that they may be saved. What he's saying here is that we must live not to create harm or injury to anyone. <clears throat> He is not saying that we should become men-pleasers, but that rather we should not be self-pleasers. He says that we don't want to put a hindrance in the way of anyone being rescued by Christ. And so he says, if you're going to imitate me, 
then you must live to win the lost. You must make it a habit of life to be concerned about them. Make it a habit of life to help others come to Jesus. And so live your life to be a blessing and not a blight, a stepping stone to him and not a stumbling stone. Live your life to be a builder, not a destroyer. The secret of evangelism is allowing the love of Christ to overflow every action and every thought and every word in your life. The most successful soul winners are those whose lives are just flooded with God's love. And they make it a habit of life to live in such a way that the lost are one to the Savior. Godlessness, godliness rather, godliness is found in imitating Jesus and Paul, because Paul imitated Jesus. It means fleeing anything that challenges God's preeminence and supreme place in our lives. It means conducting ourselves so as to bless others. It means making it a habit also to promote God's reputation and to help others find a relationship with God. He who lives like Christ will win others to Christ. What Paul says here to these Corinthians in the midst of their culture are words that come to you and me in the culture of the late 20th century. And our world today is crying out to see examples, to see models of what a Christian is. Paul says, that's what you need to be, folks. He says, imitate me. Imitate me. And as you do, you will imitate Jesus. Will you choose today to make that a habit of your life? To imitate Paul in these four areas? Will you choose today to seek to add these four habits to your life? If you do, those around you will be touched by God. Hearts that have remained closed to you will begin to open up. Doors that you have sought to go through but have been closed will begin to crack open. If you will imitate Paul, and thus Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray, as did that man of old who said, make me more like yourself and less like myself. Jesus, we need today To be convicted of the worldliness that has overtaken us. Thank you for this wonderful model that is set before us. I pray that we will forsake all that robs you 
of your rightful place in our lives. And that we will seek to add these four habits this week and that it will make a difference in how we live and how your gospel is advanced. I'm going to give you just a moment now in the quietness of this moment to say something to the Lord yourself about these four habits. Father, I pray that you will hear our prayers and answer them in Jesus' name. Amen.